Father, as we come into your word today in this passage in Romans, we pray that your spirit would so speak in to our lives about the beauty of this freedom that we enjoy. Father God, I, I, I'm not capable, Father, of being able to say the right phrase the right way to bring about spiritual difference and spiritual change in the lives of people. Father, only you can do that. We admit that we are totally at your mercy today. We are completely needy of your Spirit's power and presence in our life. And Father, as we share this passage of Scripture and these words, I pray that the presence of your Spirit would take them and speak to each one of us here in this place. That we may know this freedom, perhaps profoundly in a new way. For in many ways, this is the crux of the matter in so many of our lives. I thank you, Father, for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Isn't it just absolutely wonderful to be in church today? (laughs) To be able to sing praise and to be able to worship together as the family of God and uh, I hope we never take it for granted what it means to be able to come freely into a place like this and to be able to openly express the life that God has given to us. I thank our worship team and all that they do for us to bring us into the presence of God. And I just want you to know it's great to be back home in the United States of America. (laughs) It's great to be sharing God's Word with you today. Uh, My trip to Moldova uh, to teach the class on comparative worldviews was... uh, was a joyous experience for me, and it was a pure joy being able to uh, just speak into the lives of these 18 young people, my incredible students. And uh, okay, is it all right if I just show you a picture of my students? All right, let's show, let's show that. Okay, uh, I had the privilege of teaching a basketball team. They're the nine guys standing on the left side of the page, and um, it was just. They have a ministry, a basketball ministry, that they travel around the area and, and be able to share the love of Christ as they play. And it was just a privilege to be able to have them in the class. And I want to say I appreciate so much the opportunity the church affords me to make this trip each year. It's my 11th year to go. I want to especially thank those of you who prayed for me. I had a team of over 50 people that prayed for me, and my flights were all excellent. Uh, even had some, one of those, a couple of those serendipitous moments where you get good seats, you know. You know what a good seat is, right? Nobody next to you, right? I just loved the interaction that we had, and um, it was just a great week. Um, I continue to pray for my students that the truth that we presented in this class about worldviews helps them as they they, they face a world where these other worldviews are just running rampant. Marxism and humanism and Islam is growing at rapid rates throughout the world. The New Age movement is... It's not dead. It's ever gaining power and strength in the world and um, sounds so good to so many people. I just pray that they understand what uh, Scripture teaches and how it teaches us on all areas of life and that it's the only worldview that's really compatible with the way things really are. It's not just our belief that it's true. It is true. And it's showed in countless... um, Evidences that we presented throughout the class. Evidences that can form a foundation of seeing the world as described by the Bible and how all these other worldviews are built on a premise that is false. 
built on a premise that we as human beings can solve our own problems. Do you believe today that we as human beings can solve our own problems? Boy, history's really affirmed that, hasn't it? I don't think so. There's a lot of deception in the world. And I hope you'll just continue as the Lord brings them to your mind to pray for these students as they, uh, they live in a different uh, cultural environment than we do. Today we're returning to the book of Romans, our series in the book of Romans. We left it about nine weeks ago, I believe, and um, I'm titling this part of the book, this part of the series, The Victorious Gospel, Romans 7 and 8, these two chapters. The Victorious Gospel. And so the question that I would ask you today is victory. Are you living a victorious Christian life? Are you with me today? Are you living a victorious Christian life? I mean, yes, this is this life that is full of the joy of the Lord. It, it's bearing the spiritual fruit along this journey. It's this victory that's founded only in who Christ is and what He's done. And we've been brought in by His precious blood, His empty tomb. He is our victory. And so, would you describe your life as having grabbed hold of this victory? And you just see it constantly at work through. You're not, you're not rationalizing. You're not saying, well, it says in the Bible that I have a victorious Christian life. So, yeah, I'll vote for that, even though perhaps my experience says something different. Maybe your experience is something that you would characterize as something other than victorious. I mean, you readily accept the fact that Christ has saved you only by His grace. You know you could never earn it or deserve it. Uh, yet if you were really honest, you would say, my life is anything but victorious. I mean, you find yourself sinning and then feeling terrible about it. And so what do you do? Well, of course, you promise what? I'm never going to do that again. But you do, and you repeat the cycle of confession and promise and it's to no avail. And some days you wonder if you're a Christian at all because of the patterns you see present in your life. And it can be some addiction or maybe it's the person you just can't stand and you hate the hate that you have in your heart. All along you have this heart for God and His will. You want to do His will and it's tearing you apart that you can't seem to, to live the way it says that you ought to live. And so you, you perhaps find your way to a church that teaches about grace and you start hearing about this whole concept of grace and you begin to see this as the answer for your dilemma because your life is not matching up with what you read in the Scripture. And so maybe I've just missed out on what the meaning of grace is. You hear that you're no longer bound to the law. Your efforts to be good get you nowhere. And besides, you're completely forgiven, so quit beating yourself up. When you sin, just realize that you're a sinner, so it's to be expected. Just shrug it off. Reject the guilt, the conviction that you feel. Come on, you're under grace. Well, what I want to proclaim today is that neither of these two extremes describes the victorious Christian life of Scripture. And I think deep down we all know that. We know that sin matters to God, doesn't it? Sin matters to God. Sin mattered so much to God that He gave His only Son to die a cruel death. Sin matters to God and we know that we sin. We know we ought not to. We know we ought to live different. In Romans 6, if you were here back when we were talking about Romans 6 in November... The subject, and you can peruse it in your scripture there, but the subject is our freedom from sin. Statements are made like this in Romans 6, and, uh, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self, the old us that we were born with in sin, it was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with. I mean, it's right there. 
so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It's right there. For he who has died with Christ, Christians are freed from sin. It's right there. So there's this very real truth, whether we believe it or our behavior reflects it, it's still true that we are free from the power of sin. Praise the Lord. But before even the ink is dry on chapter 6, Paul rushes into chapter 7 because this is about freedom from the law. It's as if the apostle knows that people will read Romans 6 and think, that's not my experience. I don't feel free from sin. I keep doing it. I want my life to be about doing the will of God, and I still see so much selfishness, and I see pride, and I see lust, and maybe Paul could lead this kind of Christian life, but I'm surely not experiencing this. So I want to read the first 13 verses of Romans 7. I'm going to read the whole body of the text, and then we'll talk about it. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by her law by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Death ends the relationship. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him, Jesus who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in this newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Well, shall we say then that the law is sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So I can't blame the law. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. The law didn't make me a sinner. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Aren't you glad for the positive scripture we're studying today? I do want you to know. That Romans, the eighth chapter, is the description of what life can be like in Christ. And if you don't understand Romans 7, you will minimize the impact that Romans 8 can have in your life. We really need to understand Romans 7. The first point I would make is freedom from the law only comes through death. What does it mean? What's the law? To the Jewish person, it would mean the Jewish law, which, you know, it's the, the, the details of how you ought to act. How you ought to behave, things you ought to do, things you ought not to do. And it's righteous behavior. It's, it's the revealed nature of God. And we today, we might, we might not keep Jewish laws, but guess what? We've come up with our own list. Every generation comes up with its own list. Every generation says, well, this list will define you as a good person. If you don't do this list, you're not a good person. 
Or if you do some things that are on the prohibited part of the list, then you're not a good person. It can be written, it can be unwritten standards, rules that constitute what a good person is like. And for many modern churches and Christians, it has to do with abstaining from sinful practices. For many individuals uh, and churches will say giving money to the church is always important. Living a respectable life in your community. Aren't you going to represent God right For many individuals, it's just more of the same. If I'm going to be a good Christian, I've got to quit sinning. That's number one. I've got to do more good things for other people. I've got to get in some kind of ministry. I've got to have God happy and pleased with me. I need to pray in order to know God's will so that I can obey it. Keeping the law then becomes a way of life. And I'm here to tell you that that's what most people do. We work hard. We do our best at being people God can be proud to have on his team. (laughs) Amen. Don't say amen there. Yeah, you and I both know we fail so much of the time, don't we? The passage says that this whole way of life is associated with our former life. And it uses this whole illustration of being married, our previous spouse. We used to be married to this person that was so controlling and always did the right thing and would analyze our behavior every day to see if we did the right thing. And if we didn't do the right thing, it would just pour out this condemnation on us. And that's who we were married to in our former life. And he says that death ended and severed that relationship. Aren't you glad? Wouldn't you? you don't want to live with that kind of person, do you? Death, it doesn't, the, 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 the contractual requirements of this ended, it doesn't carry over into the grave or past the grave. Death has ended the relationship. We learned in Romans 6 that if we're a Christian, we've died with Christ. His death is our death. There's a death, this severing of relationship with the law. So that we may be joined to another, our new spouse, who is Christ, who is a person of unconditional love and acceptance, provision. We have remarried, if you will, because we were released from our first obligation over here. You see... The law was never meant to produce righteousness in us. In fact, the goal of the law, or living by standards and rules, the goal is quite the opposite. That's my second point. The law was not given for you to keep, but to break. (laughs) The law was not given to you to keep, but to break. It was to expose you that you're going to break it. And so many people are trying to keep the law and be good people. They're holding themselves to these standards and expectations, but it's always a losing battle, as we all know. We've all done it. The passage says that living by standards makes you sin. It arouses sin. It makes you think you can do it, only to crush your dreams of righteousness in a heap of sin. I can do it. I cannot sin. I cannot gossip today. I won't have any lust in my heart. I'm not going to be prideful. I'm going to be so humble today. I can do it. Only at the end of the day to look back at the trail of sin in my life and go, God must be so disappointed in me. Sometimes people say, I just need more faith. If I had more faith, if I had more strength, and I need God to give me more purity. and uh, I want to be such a better Christian, and I'm such a failure at it. Sin, I mean, the law arouses sin. I mean, imagine this scene. It's Christmas time, and the family's just put up this Christmas tree in In the house, in the family, there's this three-year-old boy who is mischievous and known to tear things up. I speak from personal experience. 
And the parents, wanting to be good parents and wanting to prevent a problem, sit the three-year-old down and explain to him how easily the tree can be pulled over. They talk to him about the danger he could be in if he pulls on the tree. So he should be careful when he's around the tree. Up to this point, the child had never even thought about pulling over the tree. But guess what? It sounded like a fun idea. He pulls over the tree. It falls upon him. Those ornaments get... uh, Hypothetically speaking. Imagine being hired for a new job, okay? During the orientation, they're going to give you a tour of the place and they show you this door to a room and they, all they say is simply never go in there. No explanation is given, just don't go in there. You start your job and what's the one thing you want to know? Why can't I go in there? What's in there? You ask fellow employees, they don't seem to know. You just can't let it go, can you? Rules, standards, laws. Always provoke the breaking thereof. It capture your attention. I mean, you can have temporary willpower. You can try to put it out of your mind. And, but at some point, you will break. The passage closes with the statement that the law has exposed me for what I am. Utterly sinful. The law is not sinful. It just opens me and exposes the sin in my own life. The, the word utterly is not a shred of good, not an ounce of good. Watchman Nee writes this, a brother who was trying to struggle into victory, just think of that phrase, struggle into victory, remarked to me, I don't know why I am so weak. Any Christians here ever had that thought in their mind? Why am I so weak? He responded, the trouble with you, I said, is that you are weak enough not to do the will of God, but you are not weak enough to keep out of things altogether. You are still not weak enough. When you are reduced to utter weakness and are persuaded that you can do nothing whatever, then God will do everything. We all need to come to the point where we say, Lord, I am unable to do anything for thee, but I trust thee to do everything in me. Our problem is that we are not weak enough. It's almost anti-American, isn't it? We think we can do it. Or at least we think we can offer some very much needed assistance to God. (laughs) Right? And he's telling you and he's telling me today, no thanks. I will do it all. I will do it all. You see, the law was given to expose our weakness. And I just have to share openly with you today that over the last 15 years of my ministry of my life, I've been teaching this kind of thing. And... But I'm still learning how utterly needy I am. I've studied this chapter over the last several weeks, and God has been saying to me that this is a little painful. But God has been saying that He just really doesn't need my help. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He just really doesn't need my help. Quit offering it, quit trying to butt in. (laughs) I don't need your help. He is fully capable. I'm not bringing stuff to the table that is usable. Here, God, aren't you glad to have this gift now in the family? (laughs) And some may object and, and, and say, no, I do have. 
I do have merit. I do have standing. I do have capabilities. I have intelligence. I have those things which God should be glad he's got in me. And I'm telling you, if you object, you remain under the strong hand of the condemnation of the law. Watch Mani again says, what does it mean in everyday life to be delivered from the law? It means that henceforth I'm going to do nothing, whatever, for God. I'm never going to try to please Him. What a doctrine, you exclaim. What awful heresy. You cannot possibly mean that. I hope... Now, this is not Watchman. This is me. I hope we catch what he's trying to say. The person that's trying hard to please God, trying to do His will, is living from himself and his own efforts. This whole orientation is wrong. He has placed himself under the condemnation of the law. He's going to live in constant failure. I mean, the, the, the rest of the chapter, we're going to look at it next week, he gets, he gets right into the nitty-gritty of the frustration. I, I want to do what's right. I want to do what God's will is, and I find myself doing the wrong thing all the time, and I beat myself up. I try harder. I'm not going to do it. I want to do what, I, what pleases him, and I do all the things that don't please him. And he gets to the end of the passage, and he says this in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm trying so hard to please him, and I am such a failure. And he answers the question in the next verse, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's our only answer. He's our only hope. Many Christians believe that their salvation was a pure work of grace. They didn't deserve it or earn it, like I said earlier. They just receive it by grace. They get that. But when they turn to their living it out, their discipleship, their sanctification, they're becoming the people that God desires for them. They now think it's up to them. Their salvation wasn't up to them, but somehow the rest of it is. And Christ said that he came to fulfill the law, not us. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13, For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He tells you what he wants to do, and then he does it in you. As soon as you step in, you forfeit. Watch my knee one more time. 1923, I met a famous Canadian evangelist. I had spoken on Romans 7 as we walked back to his home afterwards. He said this, The note of Romans 7 is seldom sounded nowadays. It's so good to hear it again. Because the day I was delivered from the law was the day of heaven on earth. After being a Christian for years, I was still trying my best to please God. But the more I tried, the more I failed. I regarded God as the greatest demander in the universe. Anybody ever feel that way? But I found myself impotent to fulfill the least of his demands. And suddenly one day as I read Romans 7, light dawned and I saw that I had not only been delivered from sin, but from the law as well. In my amazement, I jumped up and said, Lord, are you really making no demands on me? That I need not do anything more for you? He goes on to say, God's requirements have not altered. They're still the same. The law is still the law, but we are not the ones to meet them. Praise God, he is the lawgiver on the throne and he is the law keeper in my heart. He who gave the law himself keeps it. He makes the demands and he meets them. My friend could well jump up and shout when he found he had nothing to do and all who make a like discovery can do the same. As long as we are trying to do anything, he can do nothing. 
It's because of our trying that we fail and fail and fail. God wants to demonstrate to us that we can do nothing at all. And until that is fully recognized, our disappointments, our disillusions will never cease. And over the last few weeks in my own life, I've had a lot of time to reflect and to pray. And, to, and in many ways, I've, I've rediscovered, I've just allowed this work of Christ in my life to rediscover the joy of complete and utter weakness. Aren't you glad? The absolute joy, the absolute release, the absolute freedom of complete dependence. I can't do it. What a marvelous revelation. Have you got there? I can't do it. I can't be a good husband. I can't be the husband Cindy needs. I I can't be a good father. I can't be a good pastor. I can't be an effective teacher. I, I don't have any natural humility. Do you? I don't have any love in me that is just able to change another person. I don't I don't have a flow of kindness through my life or patience or mercy for others. I don't have anything in my flesh that I really need to live the way I know I ought to. And none of us do. None of us do. Sometimes we start thinking we do. And I'm here to just tell you, when you start thinking you do, you're leaving the grace system and walking back into the law system and the weight of condemnation is going to be poured out because you will fail. And so my call to you today is to... um, How's this? My call to you today is to give up. Stop it. Stop all your attempts to make God happy with you. Admit that you can't do it. Pray to Him to reveal to you that you are free from the law and the, the law system, the, 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 the behavior-oriented system to whether you're a good or bad person. You're... you're what a weight. I, just, you're free. 